Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, February 10th, 2021, and you're listening to episode 33. Today, we speak with Sean Josephs of Pinhook Whiskey. But first, Chef Louise Leonard joins us as we talk to author Peter Thomas Fornital about the relationship between whiskey and horse racing. Stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Today we're doing a very special Whiskey Chronicles. We're having a guest for the first time in this segment. Actually, two guests. One is our beautiful chef, Louise Leonard, who does our World of Wheezy segment. And a very close friend of hers who happens to be an expert on horse racing and a whiskey aficionado who is here to tell us today about the relationship between whiskey and the races. Peter, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Always fun topics to discuss, and even more so when you can do them in in tandem with an old friend and some new friends. So really quickly, before we get into the nitty gritty of the history here, give us a little background about you and your history with Louise. So there's a good way I can take this story. It goes back to when I was working in a previous career. There've been a couple of them, but a previous career in book publishing and uh, the early days of of Wi-Fi, I'm going to say, because uh, I decided that uh, rather than hang around the office on a Friday afternoon, I was going to set up shop in the Blind Tiger, a bar that was uh, very near where I was living at the time in the West Village. And Louise was the Friday, Saturday, Sunday bartender. And I quickly became a regular sitting there in the corner, usually drinking beer probably on a Friday afternoon, though they did have a good whiskey list and then occasionally checking my email about work and and more often playing horse racing on my uh, computer in the corner, turning her bar into my personal OTV. So like the the upgraded Starbucks is what we're hearing. And I would like to, you guys, I would like to interject that for anyone that ever stepped foot in one of New York City's old school OTBs, the Blind Tiger wasn't even as nice. I don't want anyone yeah I don't want anyone getting any ideas that this was like some sort of fancy place okay you know Pete Pete fit right in and I um, was more than happy to uh, serve him as he was pretend working (laughs) as he was pretend working nice So the two of you ended up collaborating on a project. Why don't you tell us about that? Several projects, uh, starting with the the food at my wedding. Then years later, when we had the opportunity to publish a book about the then nascent distilling scene in Brooklyn, uh, we we knew this book was going to succeed or fail based on the quality of its images. So my co-author Chris Chris Wirtz and I decided to spare no expense. We brought in a a young hotshot photographer, but then to make sure he wasn't going to screw things up, we reached out to the best food stylist around. And and that's how we came up with uh, our old friend Louise Leonard, who helped us out. And that was honestly still, Louise, I think back to the four days we spent 
shooting cocktails for that book and bringing in various guests from the Brooklyn bar and distilling scene to that weird little set that we found out in Red Hook. Some of the most fun days of my entire career, uh, counting everything. I would, I would totally agree. And I'm ready to make more books whenever you are. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the racing world, and then tell us a little bit of the history of whiskey and the horse races. Sure. Well, as far as my becoming a racing fan, I can remember from even being a a small kid, my parents going to the track. From early on, I had the idea that the the racetrack was a, a place to go and have fun. And much later on, as I became involved in in book publishing. For me, it wasn't until my mid-20s when I started with a great friend and colleague of mine named Frank Scatoni, with whom I worked at Simon & Schuster on the famous slash infamous editor's row there as assistants. We started going out to the track, and it was one of those things where uh, you have a nice early success, in our case, cashing a bet on a horse in the Belmont Stakes one year called Editor's Note, and you catch the bug. And then what really got us going was going to Saratoga for the first time. And that was the start of a a rather long journey. And I'll spare you all the details, but that that led me getting involved with horse racing, not just as avocation, but also vocation. So whiskey and the races, mint juleps. Tell us about how big of a part whiskey and mint juleps play in the racing days. Well, one day of the year, really two days of the year, they're unbelievably huge. And that would be Kentucky Oaks and Kentucky Derby Day. The connection between whiskey and horses goes back to the 19th century. There's probably more to the history than I know. But what I do know is this, two incredibly important exports of Kentucky. And there was a lot of cross-pollination between the racing and whiskey worlds. And so starting back in the 19th century and continuing today with the great stuff uh, Sean Josephs is doing at, at Pinhook and you know other distillers like uh, bl- classic distillers like Blanton's from the Buffalo Trace family, there's been this connection between the market at using horses to market bourbon. And I think it goes back to that organic connection of that's where this stuff was from. And in this day and age, my wife and I went every year for many years before we decided, uh, long before I got involved in racing professionally, that it was the type of vacation you needed a vacation after. It's just (laughs) it's It's intense. They're they're long days and it's uh, there's a lot of drinking. But yeah, the, the mint juleps now, not necessarily the best mint julep you're going to get right off the rack at the derby i learned to make juleps in a cocktail class i randomly took in the 1990s in our way we're doing our part to keep alive that connection between whiskey and horse racing but i have to say uh, objectively they go incredibly well together uh, to, to this day and i think the julep makes sense connected specifically to whiskey because it's a way it's a more shall we say palatable way to consume whiskey for if you're uninitiated or just if you're somebody who wants to be drinking throughout the day right my typical way of consuming whiskey is neat and there's a limit to how much neat whiskey i'm going to be able to consume throughout the course of the day whereas it's easier to throw back a julep on a on a hot Saratoga Saturday afternoon. This has me thinking because, of course, I'm sitting here thinking about this from a cook's perspective, and I'm like, so who decided that the that using mint, the herb mint, was going to be the thing? And it's making me realize that I should probably research 
Is there wild mint growing around these parts of Kentucky? Is that how it happened? Is it just that the weather at the time, you know, the Derby's in May. Are people, you know, are there herb gardens just coming in at that point? I, I don't see a cocktail happening with some herb that would have been so rare that you would have to like go to the supermarket, seek it out. You wouldn't have found it back then. Mint is one of these things you plant it in the ground and then you better really like it because it'll take over an entire <laughs> Like, That's a weed. It's a delicious weed. I was just thinking about that. If anyone has anything that they know about mint playing a part in this, I, I really want to know. I've never heard the story, but I love your hypothesis that it's something that was probably out fairly early and difficult to get rid of. And, and so therefore plentiful and somebody got the idea you don't mm -hmm. you don't see a ton of other cocktails that, that are produced on that scale that have herbs other herbs work i've had a rosemary julep with with gin and a really lovely basil julep made with tennessee whiskey so there's mm -hmm. a lot of different directions you can take it but people typically go back yeah it's too bad we can't come up with a kudzu julep to keep that weed under control well you could <laughs> <laughs> louise your charge <laughs> next week we're gonna try louise's new juleps made of weeds well we have a crabgrass issue at my garden so that's that would be the one i'd have to come up with like the the crabgrass cocktail crabgrass yeah. and cranberry crab and cran yeah, it'd be a, an interesting color for sure well, Peter, thank you so much for coming in and telling us a little bit of history about yourself and about the mint julep and about the racing. I did have one more question for you. Sean will talk to us later about the origin of his whiskey's name, which is Pinhook. Did you know much about the real term for Pinhook? Indeed. Yeah, sure. If you have knowledge of the inner doings of the breeding business, and I won't get into all of it here. I'll let Sean, I'm sure he can speak about it more eloquently than I can. But yes, it's a term I was familiar with, and it has some special resonance with, with what uh, what he's been up to in the early days of his distillery. And now, of course, he's branching out and, and doing more and more interesting things. I'm very excited to uh, follow his product along. And I think there's already a lot of delicious stuff. Proud to have a couple of pinhook bottles on my shelf. As are we. Well, thank you so much for coming along today. And Louise, thanks for um, introducing us to Peter. Well, cheers. It's always a pleasure getting to uh, hang out with Louise and talk about two of my favorite subjects. If you're ever hard up for a guest again, you know where to find me. Yes, we will have you back on, especially if you have anything new and exciting coming out that you want to promote. Excellent. In the meantime, if folks are interested in hearing more about me and horse racing, basically the best website is inthemoneypodcast.com. Lots of written content and lots of shows up there. And feel free to reach out if you have any questions about horse racing or anything we talked about today. At Looms Boldly on Twitter, probably the best way to reach me or through the contact page over at inthemoneypodcast.com. Up next, we speak with Sean Josephs of Pinhook Whiskey. Stay with us. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, our very special guest is Mr. Sean Josephs. Sean is founder and presumably master blender at Pinhook Whiskey. Welcome, Sean. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you for coming. We have so many questions for you today. First off, we're going to ask you about your journey, but I'm definitely going to ask you about the name of the whiskey, which I have a feeling will come in the answer of the journey. Anyway, so tell us about your whiskey journey. Did you always think when you were a kid you were going to end up in whiskey? Definitely not, although it's funny, it didn't even occur to me, even though it probably should have, that my family business was at least the liquor industry. Uh-huh. Huh. 
and something that my father actually chose not to follow in his father's footsteps. Oh, interesting. So in a weird way, I think he rebelled. I don't think I rebelled against him by getting back into it, but it's funny that I kind of ended up in the industry. Well, it's in your blood, apparently. It is in my blood. Full circle. Full circle. Very good. They were more on the distribution side. Okay. Not more on, they were on the distribution side. Uh-huh. But, you know, I'd say in a way, my whiskey journey really began like all good journeys with being fired from a job that I didn't like very much. (laughs) So I was working in advertising in New York after having done the post-college, you know, year in Japan, teaching English and traveling in Southeast Asia, and then living in Telluride, Colorado for a couple of years, doing the ski thing and all that. And, you know, somehow, like a lot of people, I unwittingly fell into a career that I had no intention of being in and didn't really enjoy very much. So my wife opened a Spanish tapas restaurant in New York called Tia Paul in 2004. Fun. And that opened in July. It opened July 28th. And I was, you know, this was back in the day and they were like paying themselves $300 a week, you know, herself and the other founding partner. And so I was supposed to be the big breadwinner with my crappy, boring advertising job and had insurance and all that good stuff. And I got fired, I think, on September 1st. Of what year? The same year, like two months after the restaurant opened. The same year, correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, basically a month, because she opened July 28th. So essentially, uh-huh. I was fired, I think, you know, my last day was September 1st. So Timing is everything. Timing is everything. And even though it was incredibly stressful from like a financial perspective, it was kind of the moment where I, I had the opportunity to say, wow, I really hate what I'm doing. I wonder what else I could be doing. And in the meantime, you know, we still need to pay our rent. And so I started working as a food runner at my wife's restaurant. And you got $300 a week too? Probably. (laughs) I was probably doing better than her, actually. They were very busy, even though it was a little tapas place. So that was your pivot point into becoming a hospitality professional. Correct. Yes. And I was just immediately bitten by the bug. I'd actually worked in and I wouldn't say kitchens in the proper sense, but I, when I lived in Telluride, I'd worked in the Mid-Mountain Lodge and chopping onions and mm-hmm. putting things from a bag into a pot and heating them up, and, you know, <laughs> things of that nature. Not like real cooking, but I'd had some of that kind of experience, but I'd actually never worked in a proper restaurant and certainly not in the front of house. I was just immediately bitten by the bug. It was just one of those things. I think I always grew up playing a lot of sports and I just loved like the energy. I loved the fact that I wasn't sitting behind a desk. I loved the physicality of it. I liked the hospitality of it. I loved how fast time went. Mm-hmm. I loved everything about it and quickly realized that it was a really bad idea for me to be in the tip pool when my wife was, you know, her picture was in the New York Times because her restaurant was getting a lot of accolades and I was like a food runner and it was a little awkward with the other staff, mm-hmm. certainly for my wife to try to manage me. Because they, <laughs> well, they knew where the money was going. They knew where the money was going. But it was also just like, it's just a weird dynamic, right? Sure. It wasn't like, I was the chef and she was running the front of the house. It's like it was her restaurant and I was running food. Mm -hmm. So, but I made up my mind that this is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, just to be in restaurants. And I Mm -hmm. didn't really know in what capacity, Mm -hmm. but I knew it's what I wanted to do. And I knew I couldn't work at my wife's restaurant and I was already 30. And so I felt like I was kind of in a hurry. Like I had wasted time. I'd now found my calling and 
I needed to like get to wherever I wanted to go quickly. And so the thing that made the most sense to me was to work in the most high end restaurant that I could work in. Cause I figured I should just see it from the top and just like understand and learn. And so I went to work at a restaurant called Chanterelle in Tribeca, which at one point had been a four star. Mm. And your career mushroomed from there. <laughs> he does a lot of puns. You know what? I can't follow you for that. Pun. I love puns too. <laughs> so I guess the short story is Roger DeGorn is a master sommelier and he was the sommelier at Chanterelle. And I quickly realized working in fine dining, everything is about the wine, right? If you want to sort of, if you can call it getting ahead in a restaurant, if you want to be taken seriously and you want to be really useful to the restaurant, you need to know about wine. Mm -hmm. And I literally knew nothing about wine. I mean, truly nothing, like a complete novice. And so I just dove into it. And I think because I was enthusiastic and Roger saw that I was into it, he encouraged me to take the certification program through the American Sommelier Association, which I did. And I was, you know, getting off work late and studying wine till four in the morning. Anytime a good bottle of wine was opened in the restaurant. Oh, Sean, would you like to see what 1980 Chateau Margaux tastes like? Would you like to see what 1961 Petrus tastes like? And so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so I was just enamored and I was fully in and I was learning how to decant wine and learning about all the wine regions of the world and all that kind of stuff. From there, I went to work at Per Se, which is another four-star restaurant, mm -hmm. you know, where my ambition was to be part of the wine program. And what I learned at Per Se, where everyone has to start as a food runner. It doesn't matter if you already had been a sommelier. Wow. And so I was kind of back to square one, but that was their process. You have to start as a food runner. And I realized that I was going to be there for a very long time before I got to have my dream job on the wine team. And as I said, I was in a hurry. And so I got the opportunity to work at a restaurant called Blue Water Grill, which is a big restaurant at the time in Union Square. And while it wasn't particularly high-end, it gave me the opportunity. The restaurant did something like $20 million a year in revenue. And so I was running a very big wine program and beverage program. Very good. And so I spent the next two and a half years doing that. And, you know, somewhere in that period of time, I really fell in love with American whiskey. And I think that, as you all probably know, a lot of people, at least I know from the sommelier world, once you learn how to learn about spirits or wine or something, you can more easily apply it to something different. Of course. So I'd already done all the deductive wine tasting, and I'd, I'd also got my certified sommelier from the American Sommelier Association. And I was in blind tasting groups, and I'm tasting wine all day long, and I'm trying to train my palate more with respect to food, working in these great restaurants. and so I start tasting whiskey. And so again, now at this point, we're talking about like 2006, 2007, and I'm blown away by qualitatively how good it is, particularly relative to the price, right? Especially back then, right? Because the whole Pappy thing hadn't happened. The whole kind of explosion of American whiskey hadn't happened. Sure. Elijah Craig 18 was a $48 retail item. Wow. Right. So I distinctly remember friends of mine from other restaurants would give me their pappy because they no one wanted a twenty dollar glass of whiskey. <laughs> they couldn't sell it. You know, they would like get their allocation, but then they're like they couldn't justify keeping it because no one wanted to drink twenty dollar whiskey. So then they were just you know, and they were trained to like you want to move through your product. So I'm getting really into American whiskey as well, and I had the opportunity to open my own restaurant, which I guess I kind of skipped, which I can you know get through very quickly. But essentially, somewhere along the way, I did the wine thing, and I was like, this is not what I I thought I wanted to be a master sommelier. And at some point, I tasted a lot of the really good wines, and I had all the pairing conversations on the floor at very nice restaurants. And I just somehow saw that that wasn't for me. Like, I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life like, oh, maybe I can be a beverage director for, you know, John George and oversee the wine programs or beverage programs of four restaurants or that type of thing. 
I just knew I had friends who did that. And I don't know, it just didn't spark like, okay, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Right. And I was really more inspired by doing something entrepreneurial. And I wanted to open my own restaurant. And I had this opportunity where I was able to completely develop my own concept. And there's just plenty of wine focused places. And I'd really gotten into whiskey. And I also, my wife is from New Orleans and I'd really gotten inspired spending a lot of time in New Orleans and being around Southern food. And so essentially, and obviously I'm skipping a lot, but I decided to open an American whiskey bar and restaurant and it was called Char Number 4 and it was in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. And I opened it in September of 2008. We've had that bar mentioned in this podcast we before have. By, oh, cool. um, by Nicole Austin. Yes. I was randomly texting with, emailing with Nicole <laughs> today. Someone sought out to introduce us. And then I was like, hey, Nicole, it's Sean, Char Number 4. And she's like, oh my God, how are you? So we're meant to do a liquid trade in the New York. Nice. Yeah. I think that's where she had her whiskey epiphany, is it not? Yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah. I think she went from testing the waters of the New York source system to becoming a whiskey aficionado and then maker. Yeah. I didn't know <laughs> that she, I mean, I think by the time I thought that by the time I had met her. I think it was on a date at your restaurant and the date was so she doesn't even remember the guy. She just remembers the whiskey. So I think we were a very popular first date spot, you know? Yeah. I don't know what all the factors were, but you know, I do think when we opened it in 2008, it was really one of the only American whiskey bar and restaurants in America, right? You had some places in Kentucky, but even those places weren't really built around like showcasing. What we did at Char Number 4 was basically like, here's an encyclopedic selection of all the American whiskey that's available in the country, mm -hmm. which at the time was, of course, much smaller than it is now because there was no real craft booms to speak of, both in terms of like craft NDPs and micro or craft distilleries. And so really the ethos behind it was like, hey, we've got, and of course, because Pappy was easily available, it was a pretty comprehensive representation of what was available at the time. I opened another restaurant called Maysville, which was in Manhattan, which was a similar concept. Yeah, Maysville. So we're doing this thing and we're kind of Nicole and others, I think, introducing a lot of people to American whiskey in a way that they never had been introduced before, where we're selling everything as a one ounce taste or a two ounce glass. And again, everything was so inexpensive back then. What I did was I priced everything at 20% cost, which is pretty standard for restaurants. But what I did that was unusual was I didn't set a threshold, meaning there were whiskeys that were pretty tasty that were $2 an ounce. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so if you think about the timing of it too, which was, I think Lehman Brothers collapsed like three, a few weeks around the time of Charter before opening, it was a chance for people to come in and have a really nice experience. And, you know, you could taste five really good whiskeys and spend $10. Mm -hmm. So I think that helped a lot as well. But what ultimately then led to Penhook, besides the obvious, which is that I was constantly around American whiskey and just became more interested in, in diving deeper, was the category was incredibly narrow at the time, right? So 2008, there's one Maker's Mark, one Basil Hayden, one Mount Creek, mm -hmm. one Woodford. Single barrel picks were not yet a, a, a big thing. Obviously, the cocktail thing was really starting to percolate at that point. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of creativity. Dozens and dozens of bourbons, a handful of rice. Yes. If that, and a few single malts and really nothing else. Correct. And so I guess I kind of had two thoughts. One was I thought that no one at that time expected there was going to be this boom, which in my mind really started to happen in 2011, 2012. But I definitely saw firsthand because I was in that restaurant 70 hours a week or whatever, interacting with people that there was a ton of curiosity. But I kind of had this feeling as I was trying to introduce people to different whiskeys that there needed to be more variety in the flavor profiles and in the approach. And because I loved it so much, I had the thought, which I don't think was not out of arrogance, but just like, you know, I bet I could do something different, not better, 
just different. Like, I think there's a different approach to be had. And because I had a wine background, the first thing that occurred to me, and this was especially true back then, the entire industry is based on taking natural ingredients that have a tremendous amount of variability and blending them to produce a homogenous product, right? Right. That's how all whiskey was made. And coming from the wine side, that made no sense to me because it's the antithesis of how good wine is made, <laughs> right? Good wine is made by taking the natural and making the best that you can and accepting the variation as something special and unique mm -hmm. because that vintage can never exist again. There's also something that I appreciated about the ephemeral nature of that, right? The idea that something exists and then it will be gone. Right. And that's part of what makes it more special. And so kind of the nugget of the idea of Pinhook before we even had the name Pinhook was let's make vintages. Let's not have an established flavor profile at a set proof. Let's set out to make the best whiskey, not the same whiskey. And that's really how the concept was born. And, you know, back then it was very inexpensive to buy barrels. So I founded the company with two friends of mine who are not in the industry, but who also loved bourbon. And we bought, as one would back then, uh, barrels from MGP in Indiana, back when it was still LDI. And we paid $465 a barrel for three-year-old bourbon. Wow. Mm, wow. Which year was this? This was 2011. So we kind of conceived okay. of Pinhook. We conceived of Pinhook only as the sense that we're like, we're going to do something in 2010. And it took until 2011 to buy the barrels because actually I had never heard of LDI. Really? Because that type of conversation, I'm sure people who were in the industry knew it. Mm -hmm. But as a bar owner, even one who was very immersed in American whiskey, I never heard anyone say, you know, LDI. And again, not to speak ill of other brands, that's because brands like Templeton that were using that distillate yep. were mm -hmm. saying that they had their own distillery. Right. Right. So it was just a much different time. I knew that there was this, you know, Drew Kulsfein from KBD would come in a lot and he had Noah's Mill and Rowan's Creek and all this stuff. And he wasn't allowed to say where his stuff was from. I just always assumed it was from Heaven Hill because it was close by. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't this real idea. I knew that Four Roses was being, or sorry, I knew that Bullet was being made at Four Roses, okay. that they had a contract there. But there was very little knowledge around frankly, how much out there is actually sourced. Right. Yeah. So it actually took me a while to quote unquote, find one of the largest distilleries in America. We can't tell you yeah. how many discussions about transparency we've had on this podcast yeah. with makers and blenders and independent bottlers who say, you know, transparency is key. You know, there's a long tradition, particularly in Scotland, of very transparent independent bottling. Yes. But in the US, it was a matter of secrecy for so many years. Correct. And that was the thing. So one of the biggest things with, which ultimately ties into our name was to be transparent because as a bar owner, I found it some combination of like frustrating, annoying, and pointless. Like I'm like, I really don't care where you got it. Right. I don't care if you tell me it's only two and a half years old, if it tastes good. I just care about the quality. And in fact, it's a turnoff if you're going to try to sell me some weird <laughs> story about some creek somewhere and your distillery and you don't even <laughs> like you don't even have a distillery. It's such a bizarre conceit, you know? So at the time, you couldn't go to MGP or LDI. And so the whole point was that we wanted to actually, of course, taste our barrels and taste them as they were maturing and see how different they were from each other. And so we shipped our barrels. You had to order it taste unseen, as it were? Yeah, basically, they send you one representative wow. sample. Like, they send you, uh -huh. at least that's what, at our level, that's what we got. It's like, mm -hmm. here's your sample of your whiskey. And so, you know, you get one barrel sample. I'm like, yeah, this tastes good. Presumably, they pulled it from one of the <laughs> Right? I would hope. And so we shipped our barrels. We found Strong Spirits in Bardstown, Kentucky, which I think back in the day was doing everything from 
at some point, like Angel's Envy to Michter's, like they were just a warehouse, a bottler. They had their own brand called Redemption, which was later sold to Deutsch. But at the time, Michael Kambar and Dave Schmier, who own it, were making their own whiskey. But anyway, that was the only place that I could find that it had a bonded warehouse. We could store our barrels. We could check in on them. And uh, they had a facility for, you know, um, filtering and proofing, bottling, et cetera. And so then we got to do, honestly, what we really wanted to do with the partners, which is we started going to Kentucky four, five, six times a year to do our bourbon business and check on our barrels, which was awesome. And ended up visiting a lot of other distilleries and really just trying to soak in all the magic. And we really wanted to be in Kentucky. And one of my founding partners, his best friend from high school, grew up in thoroughbred horse racing. This guy, Jamie Hill, his father was a vet at the track. And Jamie ended up being in thoroughbred horse racing himself. And we would stay at Jamie's house. And Jamie also would show us his stuff. So, you know, we would go to Keeneland, which is the track in Lexington, Churchill Downs. We'd go watch horses train, you know, go to different horse farms. And so we were just kind of soaking in all the magic. One of the things Jamie explained was a big part of his business is called pin hooking, which I had never heard of. And a pin hook in thoroughbred horse racing is when you buy a baby thoroughbred based on its lineage with the explicit intent of selling it when it's mature for a profit and someone else races the horse. And so the reason you do that is because it's a safer proposition than racing horses. And so it's basically like this other huge part of the horse business that no one really talks about because nothing really happens except you buy a horse, you take care of it, you feed it, and then hopefully it matures the way you expect it to because of its lineage and how it looked physically when it was young. And someone will pay more for the horse than you pay for it. Mm -hmm. So we connected the it also sounds like you can achieve volume. Yes. You can achieve scale with an operation like that. Yes, you're exactly right. So you basically... Mm -hmm. And not everything's tied up in how the horse performs long-term. It's about getting it from toddlerhood to maturity and making it someone else's issue. Correct. Yep. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, mm -hmm. basically the way they work is like you raise some money and you buy a group of horses and you hope that they're not all going to mm -hmm. yield a good return. But if the law of averages plays out, then you end up on this, that entire year's pin hook, you'll make money. And so we connected the dots. We like mm -hmm. that idea. And we're like, oh, uh, we're pin hooking bourbon. I love that. We're buying baby bourbon based on its lineage and how we think it is physically, <laughs> you know, at its age. And we're maturing it and selling it when it's mature. Uh -huh. Have you had to turn any over to glue? No, actually, you know, it's funny. You're not the first person to ask it. <laughs> question but so jamie who's our partner you know they have like sort of uh i don't think i'm getting the term exactly right but essentially like a happy pastures program and we contribute money to that as well to ensure that certainly any of the horses that have anything to do with pen hook get to enjoy a peaceful existence after their racing days are over mm, i'm talking about the whiskeys <laughs> you have to send any of the whiskeys to a glue factory well i mean that's the art of blending right you got to find a way you either have to find a way to hide them or i'd say you have to find a way to say, well, it seems like not a great whiskey, but does it have a quality that can enhance when it's blended with a number of other barrels? Mm -hmm. So you're a matchmaker. We're a matchmaker, in, yes. In that sense. And so mm -hmm. Jamie also has a racing stable called Bourbon Lane Stable, which he had created you know, before we started Penhook. And he names every horse in his stable with bourbon in the name of the horse. And he was just doing that because he loved bourbon, just like we did. And so he had all these great horse names. And we already knew we wanted to do vintages. We liked this idea of pinhooking as this transparent way of talking about buying and selling whiskey. And I think being around him all the time, we were just kind of struck by this notion. What if we use one of his bourbon named horses 
to mark each vintage and that these were not just representative forces. They were actually currently active racing thoroughbreds. So if you look at any of our bottles, these are all horses that are racing now. And if you go to our website, you can see you know the races the horses have been in, where they finished, how much money they've won, when they're racing next. And so part of the idea too is to make it experiential. So if you were interested and you're like, oh, I have this bottle, Bourbon Country. Uh, oh, Bourbon Country is racing in two weeks at Churchill Downs, I could watch the race on TV, I could place money, you know, place a $2 bet on the horse. And so really kind of tying together these experiences that we were having. Mm -hmm. The other thing that it did, which I had kind of noticed from my chart number four days, is you had all these collectible whiskeys, right? Let's say George T. Stack. And the only distinguishing feature from year to year was just a vintage date. And so if you lined up a bunch of vintages of George T. Stack, you just saw the same bottle over and over and over again. And we also thought that there was something fun and creative that we could do. And so by having these different horse images on the bottle, it's also a way where if you say have three vintages of our rye lined up, besides having three different vintage dates, they have three different drawings of horses on them. And so just from, I think, the enjoyment of collection, there's something more kind of visceral and appealing about the bottles actually looking different, even though the wax color is the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I first tasted Pinhook, was that a tasting here in Los Angeles? I was just drawn in, drawn in by the scheme. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and to that point, I think the thing that I think about a lot because of my time in the restaurant industry, it's easy to say that, of course, packaging matters. But I spent so many years trying to create experiences and memories that I really think about how that bottle and the connection and the emotional connection someone might have to the bottle and the way it looks will shape their experience. Mm -hmm. So it's thrilling to hear you say that it drew you in because I think that's what really good products do. I mean, they have to deliver when you taste them, but you want someone to have an emotional connection, just like they do when they walk into a restaurant and they look around and they just feel like the ambiance is incredible. Yeah. Because if you go into a restaurant and you feel like the ambiance is beautiful, then the restaurant has to really work hard to mess that up, <laughs> right? They've set everything up perfectly. And as long as they can deliver... A first impressions. First impression. If they can deliver a good product to you from a cocktail wine, et cetera, good glassware, wine served at the proper temperature, great cocktails, well-crafted, delicious food, well-presented, you're going to have a much higher opinion of it because of how you felt yeah. the second you walked in the door. Indeed. You know, it's a very solid scheme. And I mean scheme in the technical sense, Yeah, the way you have categorized your whiskeys for market. Gary, I don't think either of us has seen this done in this way before. Named after horses? For sure not. <laughs> <laughs> uh now, that was 2011. Now it's 2021. Yeah. In a chestnut shell, tell us what happened between 11 and 21. I should mention really quickly, though, before I answer that, the other thing that I'm so proud of with Penhook. So Charles Fulford, who's one of my other founding partners, he did all of our design. Ah, brilliant work. So other than the fact that, as you guys know, we now have a PR company. Other than that, we've never outsourced anything. That's awesome. So everything that we did from the naming, I handled all the product side. And everything we've done with Jamie, because he's in the horse industry, we truly have done everything ourselves, for better or for worse. But it, it does make it very personal to us that it's not like the three of us got together and then we had this idea that we wanted to have our own company, you know, bourbon. And then we hired a marketing or design company to say like, hey, we have this idea. Can you guys help create packaging and naming and logos? Mm -hmm. We did it all ourselves. And that is super meaningful to me. But uh, yeah, so it's organic. It's not manufactured. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's funny. You said that perfectly because it's, it would be very easy to look at Penhook and be like, well, yeah, duh, of course, bourbon and horses in Kentucky, I get it. But the reality is it did happen organically through friendships. We did not 
set out to create that idea. If we hadn't been the set of friends that we had been, if Jamie hadn't happened to be in the horse business, you know, we had any number of ideas of how we were going to express our vintages before we actually landed on this idea. You were talking about the arc. To me, the most important thing in the arc is that from 2011 to 2014, we did nothing but spend time in Kentucky Yeah, mm-hmm. because the industry wasn't booming and we didn't think we were in a hurry. Like we were like, we're in no rush. We're just waiting for this bourbon to age. As one does. Wait. <laughs> As one does. We wait and you wait and you wait. And we were just enjoying being in Kentucky and enjoying being with friends and just thinking about all sorts of different ideas, you know? And so 2014, we do our first release course called Bourbon Courage. And it was 15 barrels, I think, was the total production. So not very much. Yeah. We only sold it in New York and Kentucky. And back then, I think especially, it's just like if you had a new bourbon, and I think our packaging was pretty nice, and it was reasonably priced, like the SRP was $65, I think, on a six-year-old bourbon. It just it was the easiest thing to sell. Like We all had our full-time jobs. I'm running restaurants. And so we didn't even have to do the thing that suppliers normally do, which is like run around and sell their wares. Like the distributor was like, uh, we just sold 200 cases in a week. Wow. And we're like, Oh, I don't know. I don't think that's very good. I think you should aim a little higher. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, the thing was that we realized, and I think this is what I always thought about restaurants because we opened between my wife and I five restaurants. You just kind of know if a restaurant's working from day one, like it just has that spark. You either capture lightning in a bottle or you don't. And I do remember, in spite of the fact that it was maybe easy to sell whiskey at the time, that our distributors were like, this isn't normal. And they sold Willet as well. Like they had experience with craft. Mm-hmm. And they're like, wow, you guys, there's something about this where people are just seeing this package and hearing the story and they're buying it. So between 2014 and 2017, we just did seven little tiny bourbon releases, each one connected to a different thoroughbred, each one with a different wax color. Each one was six months older than the prior. So we were just kind of playing around with something that we hadn't seen before, which was like these bourbons that were, each one was six months older than the previous. Mm -hmm. And so again, no two were the same. And 2017, probably that was around the time earlier in the year where I was kind of thinking along with my partners, like, you know, it seems like this works, that people love it. We're getting such good feedback. Maybe we should try to build off of this. And I was also realizing around that time, and you have to understand, again, my wife opened her restaurant in 2004. We were starting to understand more about how difficult the restaurant business is as a long-term proposition. Mm -hmm. And we kind of saw our future because we knew enough other restaurateurs that were older than us. And we're basically like, okay, so we're basically going to have to be a restaurant ahead for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. You always have to open a, a, you always have to plan and open another restaurant because you never know when that restaurant that you have, even though it's doing really well and making money, will suddenly seemingly stop Mm -hmm. making money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Always be opening. I'm going to say 2020. That's when it's going to stop me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good. A great pandemic will come. I'm seeing the future now. A great (laughs) pandemic will come in 2020 (laughs) and restaurants will shut all over the nation. Well, you know. I, well, I didn't have a crystal ball. I managed to close my restaurants before or sell them. Uh-huh. So oh, good. I actually got out. But in the meantime, the fall of 2017 is when we released our first rye. And that was the first time where we did 150 barrels of production instead of 15 barrels. So 150 barrels is like what they spill on the floor when they make makers. Mark <laughs> week. But, you know, by our standards, it was 10 times more. So it was a big deal. And that was when we actually had to start trying to sell it and tell the story and Mm -hmm. work with our distributors and 
do work with and all that kind of stuff. And so 2017 to 2020, I mean, we're now distributed in 26 states. And yeah, we've certainly come a long way between 2017 and 2020. Congratulations. Yes. Well, now you have me very thirsty to drink horses. Great. Let's so. drink some horses. <laughs> <laughs> we have before us samples, three bourbons and two ryes. Okay. You serve as our guide? Sure. Okay. Why don't you tell me what you have, though? I mean, I had the list. But... Yes, we have the Bourbon War mm-hmm. uh, year, uh, year four and five. Yep. Great. And we have the Bohemian Bourbon. Yep. 15.3 hands is the horse yeah. size. And then we have Ride On, which I love that yep. name. It's so cute. And then we have Tis Ride Time. Great. So let's start with Ride On. Ride On. Okay. Ride right On, man. <laughs> ride On. Ride On, Ride On. I mean, I guess the part of the story I sort of left out but becomes relevant now is we went from sourcing from MGP to having a friend of Jamie. So more organic growth and development. A frustrated lawyer, I mean, I guess many of them are, who decided that he wanted to get into the whiskey business. And so he bought the former old Taylor distillery, which had been sitting and turning into a ruin for, I think, nearly half a century. Mm-hmm. And he restored it. It's now called Castle and Key. And so Ride On is the first whiskey to come out of the old Taylor distillery since it was shut down in 1972. Beautiful. I've heard lovely things about Castle and Key. It's a beautiful, I mean, they did, they did an amazing job with the restoration. And what's notable, I would say about besides the fact that it's from the same site is the reason Colonel Taylor picked that location was because of five springs. He in fact built a keyhole shaped well around one of the springs to pretty blatantly try to reinforce the point that the water was the key to his whiskey. Aha. That's awesome. But, you know, we're pulling water from the same well, the same spring, and we are aging our whiskey in the same rickhouse that Mm. we started construction on in 1887. So it's pretty cool to me that we went from you know, kind of creating a new story around what we were doing. And now we're have some pretty cool ties Indeed. to a distillery that was built in 1887. Yeah. So Ride On is pretty unusual from a mash bill standpoint. And so I got to customize these mash bills with the distilling team at Castle and Key. So this is 60% rye, 20% barley and 20% corn. 20% barley is what truly makes it unusual. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't know if in your other conversations, you've come across this, but typically when you talk to at least some of the bigger original distilleries, they'll talk about malted barley mostly for enzymatic or fermentation reasons. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Right. And to ease the way, particularly in rye production. Yes. The interesting thing about that narrative is that I'd never heard a single person talk about the flavor of barley, Mm -hmm. even at 5% or 10%. And you think about, of course, single malt scotch as being one of the most complex whiskeys in the world. Rye is the flavor grain, corn, it's all about corn, you know, and malted barley is just there, you know, hey, we need some sugar. (laughs) But when I was tasting these white dogs with different mash bills, one of the options I had was to just stick with the 95.5. Uh, mash bill that MGP has become famous for. And I was just really drawn to this mash bill. I thought it had more depth, more complexity, more richness. What I didn't know, which I think ties into why barley is kind of dismissed, is that it's the most expensive grain. So barley is the most expensive, then followed by rye. Hence the story. Yes. Hence the story. And and I think particularly during the 70s when bourbon fell out of favor for a long time, certainly the distilleries had every reason to make a more cost-effective product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is the average age, so it is youthful. The average age of the barrels is about two and a half. But I do think what I like about this mash bill and what I like particularly about the barley is I do think it has, you know, especially at 97 proof, it's really softened. I think it's softened the edges. And I think it's what helped kind of round out. And I think it gives it this kind of nutty, toasty, 
umami character, which is a nice balance to because it does have that typical younger rye herbaceousness, mm-hmm. whether you want to call it spearmint or, you know, something herbal. I will tell you my take on this. This is perhaps the fruitiest rye I've ever encountered. Very fruity, right? Yep. It is yeah. fruity, but it does still have a little packs of punch. Mm-hmm. I love that you said fruit too, because I think one thing I learned in the blending is there's a preconceived notion of what it, rye is meant to be. And so rye is often blended to the spice profile. And I think what I learned when I taste all the barrels that make up our blends is, of course, you could drive it that way. But one thing I didn't really talk about is my approach in blending. I take what I think of as like a wine approach, which is I don't care what the profile is. I'm not looking for certain notes. I'm looking for aromatic complexity, complexity on the palate, balance, length of finish, alcohol integration, and mouthfeel. Right. So if you're looking for those things, it can take the shape of something in rye that's very fruity and floral. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're not trying to drive it towards something, then you'll find that there are all these other interesting, you know, flavors and aromas lurking in there. And while I, don't, I wouldn't say I tried to shape it towards that fruit and herbaceousness, I felt like that when I was looking for those benchmarks that I described, mm-hmm. that's where it landed. Yeah. Well, it's often pitched to bourbon drinkers as a spicy bourbon. Correct. Yep. Okay, fine. If you need to convert people, but I think that that sells rye short. I do too. Correct. It's It really sells rye short. I mean, I think, not to be too controversial, but I think rye is better than bourbon. I think so too. <laughs> I had to be honest. I think rye is burgundy. And bourbon is Bordeaux. I'll go with that. It's also delicious and complex, and but a little more obvious. And rye, like burgundy, is a little harder. Plays a little harder to get, and maybe isn't as easy, like as approachable and likable at first. But then once you get to know it, you kind of revel in the more complex aromas and flavors. So which one should we do next? Should we do the Tis Rye Time since we're talking rye? I think actually we need to do Bohemian because it's the other Castle and Key distillate. So this is our three-year-old bourbon, which has a more traditional mash bill of 75% corn, 15% rye, and 10% barley. And I think you'll also see you get a lot of the more of the fruit and I think even for bourbon, the, the floral notes. So yeah, this is the first bourbon that we've released with our Castle and Key distillate. Well, I really like the nose on this one. Oh, the butterscotch. It is a butterscotch bomb on the palate. Isn't it amazing? And only and at oh, three wow. years old, that butterscotch is already really, mm-hmm. really coming through. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot, to me, like a lot of orange peel or something kind of citrusy and bright. Definitely. Butterscotch with orange mm-hmm. peel. Yeah. I notice all of the whiskeys are in the mid to high 90s on proof. Did you discover that that was your sweet spot? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think what we've done, and I'm wondering if it will ultimately lead to some sort of conclusion, is the other thing that we do that and you all would know at least as well as me, but maybe someone else is doing this and I'm not aware of it. But I think we're the only ones where once I do the blend, which I do at cask strength, I simply then will taste the whiskey at 10 to 15 different proofs Mm -hmm. to find the proof that is the best expression. Mm -hmm. What's fascinating about that is, let's say that rye at 97 proof that you find really fruity, it can be completely flat on the nose at 96 or 95, Uh for example. So we're really searching for the proof. I have started to see on the rye that I'm consistently, but then I've interestingly being totally open. I've proofed three ryes in a row of different expressions of ours at 97. And I was just working on our 2021 rye that I proofed at 98. So that's right now I'm seeing at the younger ages, that seems to be where it's, it wants to be. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see where it goes. And then the bourbon, I think I have had more 
younger bourbons that I've proofed in the mid 90s. And I think that that's because it's tougher to blend young bourbon. It's a little more astringent and a little more assertive. And I think at a higher proof, it comes across a little too sharp. Uh Uh Well, you've done a beautiful job with this one, the Bohemian. Thank you. So yeah, let's move on then. So it's a pretty big shift, but so the vertical series, you have the four and the five year. This is one of my favorite things, even though, not even though MGP is great. The two bourbon war releases. Okay. The two bourbon wars. So the idea behind this was, you know, we knew that this year we were switching to our Castle and Key distillate, and I was looking to find something to do with our remaining MGP barrels that would be distinct from these other expressions from Castle and Key. And so treating it as a series seemed to be the way to make it stand out more. And the idea that I came up with, which also comes from wine, was, and also because it's, I think, the thing that fascinates me and most people the most about bourbon is, what does one more year in the barrel do? Right. And so the series starts with 1,350 MGP bourbon barrels that are all the same age because when we bought them, all the barrels were, I think, 13 or 14 months old and they were all shipped to Castle and Key. And the notion was, let's start at four years and end at 12 years because that's historically like kind of the range of the sweet spot. Four years is a sort of embarkation point as a bottled and bond. 12 years used to be considered to be about as old as we want to go before you get too much wood, you know, too much tannin. So the idea is every year I will blend 150 barrels. If you divide 1350 by nine, you get 150. And so it's 150 barrels a year. And each year it's released one year older than the prior. And so if somebody wants to follow along with this and collect the entire series, in the fall of 2027, they can buy the 12-year-old bourbon. And if they save either little 100 mLs of all the bottles, or maybe they bought two bottles, drank one, and, and saved one, they can taste these, you know, the same mash bill of MGP bourbon aged in the same place from age four to age 12. And so what you all get the opportunity to try is the nascency, the beginning of that, which I think is already showing really cool things. One thing that's really important to me about this series, though, is that it's affordable and accessible. So okay. the four year is a $45. All right. And that's at 98 proof unfiltered. And the five year is $50 unfiltered, 104 proof. Well, it definitely has way different nose than the other bourbon, than the Bohemian. Yeah. And I think we're different, you know, different distilleries. I think in a way I would almost not think about Bohemian and try to like switch gears and just think about these two next to each other and how the four compares to the five, because it's really about that journey. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's go. I want to pour both to smell them next to each other. I've already tasted both and I'm ready with comments. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Great. You start. I'm still pouring. Okay. So the four year. Yes. I speak in terms of bomb, not in a bad way, but in a positive way, because if there's something I really love, like Sherry, uh, I say, oh, a sherry bomb. That's wonderful stuff. I mean, I said a butterscotch bomb. Yeah. Um, I find number four a tobacco bomb. Ooh. Mm. That's lovely. Not number four, but the four-year bourbon war. I find uh, the, yeah. the tobacco is high in the mix. Mm. Yeah. They're similar, but enough different where I can see. I think I like the five better. Mm. I mean, I like both of them. They're very good. I find the five both mellower and spicier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the spice kick on that one. I think what I note, too... And I think those are all, I see and agree with all of those. I also, I really see the wood sugar development. So not actually the taste of wood, but the sort of darkening or caramelizing of the sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the four year has more of a butterscotch, like a brighter sugar note, mm-hmm. whereas it's starting to creep into this more of a brown sugar note. Yeah. I was going to say, I get the brown sugar on the five. In the five. And almost like a brown butter type of thing. Mm. It kind of reminds me of like, 
when they make bananas foster tableside oh, sure. at, at uh, Brennan's yeah. in New Orleans. Yeah. You know, when they, they brown the butter first and then they take like a giant scoop of the beurre noir. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that sort of aroma. I think I'm probably going too deep New Orleans on it, but I also okay. think Fiverr has kind of this like slightly smoky chicory kind of note in it as well. You should know we have an enlightening sidebar here. First off, where did you grow up? I grew up in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts. Okay. And now you live in New Orleans. Yeah. Outside of Boston. Now I live in New Orleans. Yeah. I grew up in New Orleans in a Creole family. Oh, wow. Deeply embedded in Creole cuisine. So, and, and career took me all over the country and deposited me in Los Angeles in the end. But you cannot go too deep into Creole cuisine. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. You're safe. Yeah. I've loved it here. I mean, we've visited here for 14 years before we moved. We've lived here for the last six years. so it's... Mm-hmm. And your wife is from there. My wife is from here, yeah. Fantastic. All right. Shall we tis rye time? Tis rye time. Tis rye time. So tis rye time is, well, you know, you'll kind of have to taste it in a vacuum because the five-year won't be released until this spring. But tis rye time is the rye vertical. So the rye vertical is following 450 rye barrels. Mm. And it's the exact same journey just with rye instead mm-hmm. of bourbon. And there's less of it because people unfortunately drink less rye than bourbon. So I'm on a mission to change that. So <laughs> you can help me. Me too. That's a beautiful smell. You know what? I am too. And the analogy I always use, which I don't, for me, and it's still in spite of all the education and popularity of cocktails, most people, bourbon. Yeah. I totally know what that is. Rye. Like what is rye? Like it seems like something foreign and also scary. The way I compare it is like everyone thinks that bourbon is like beef and rye is emu. <laughs> Or like ostrich meat, like it's some bizarre thing. And in my mind, I'm like, no, bourbon is like grain-fed beef and rye would be grass mm-hmm. beef. Like mm-hmm. they're they're more similar than dissimilar and they have nuance, mm-hmm. but right. they're very much in the same family. Like it's still American whiskey. And- yeah, no, this, is a, this is lovely. Ryegrass-fed beef. Yes, ryegrass-fed beef. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Cinnamon. Cinnamon is very high in the mix. Yes. I mean, the actual rye flavor itself, like I get a lot of rye bread in this one. Mm-hmm. I like it's a very easy drinking ninety-seven proof. I think good after dinner. Very yeah. These don't drink anywhere near as hot as they're labeled. And that's the interesting thing is when I do the proofing is sometimes because like I said I'm looking for the balance point. The lower proofs hit your palate as hotter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just something about where all the flavors are at a certain proof that somehow. The alcohol is better hidden sometimes at higher proofs and lower proofs. So when you do that exercise, as I do, of like going through all the proofs, it's not as simple as like, oh, and that's, you just keep going down in proof and it just keeps getting softer. That's not what happens at all. Yeah. Well, proof point is the sweet spot. You know, the best proof point is the sweet spot between heat and flavor. It's where heat is, is minimized and flavor is maximized. Yes. And I really try to emphasize it all the time because it is a, I think really true and important to what we do and what's different about what we do other than people releasing cast strength stuff which by nature is like yeah sometimes george t stag is 128 proof and sometimes it's 119 proof and sometimes it's 142 proof but that's more the result of just where cast strength was i at least think that we're the only ones and certainly one of the few where each time we're just picking the sweet spot Mm -hmm. proof wise for that release and then we start over each time with no preconceived notion of what the proof should be. Right. That's awesome. And now out of all of these, which is your favorite? Oof, that's really tough. I think right now, um, even though I said rye is my favorite, I'm just, I think the, I really like the five-year bourbon. Yeah. The really five-year good. bourbon I, I is really that, good. And I think that part of that is because I'm just so excited about 
the vertical series yeah, because it's just going to be fun to watch it. And I'm just thrilled that I think they're markedly different. And I think that actually, I mean, you all would know this because you hadn't tasted the prior stuff, but this is four year to five year is a bigger leap than three mm-hmm. to four. Yeah, And so I'm just kind of fascinated by how that's going to keep sure. playing out. You know, is five to six going to be yeah. less of a leap or does that prove to be an even bigger leap? I don't know the answer to any of it. And so I think part of my attachment to the five year right now is just like, it's the most recent one we released. I'm excited about the series and I'm really happy. It's it's 104 proof too. I think it hits mm-hmm. the palate pretty soft for that. Yeah, it is very soft for that. I wouldn't have guessed it was that high until I looked at it. Cocktails? I was just going to say, so speaking of all these different flavors, which of these would you prefer to put in a cocktail? That's a great question. I mean, I think I'm a big fan of classic uh, whiskey cocktails. Mm-hmm. And I think especially being in New Orleans, I just never get tired of making a Sazerac. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> You know, it's just too good of a drink. Mm-hmm. I will find, you know, like sometimes we're having people over, I'll make a whiskey sour. And I actually think that Bohemian bourbon would be really sure. good in a whiskey sour mm-hmm. because of some of those floral and fruit notes. And I think you could get a, a whiskey sour that's a little lighter on its feet and more of a, a really good aperitif than something that's heavier. And then I like, I mean, my biggest pet peeve with classic cocktails, I think, and probably why I love the Sazerac so much. It's probably one of the, sim- you know, it's not the simplest cocktail, but it's, it's a up very there. simple cocktail. Mm-hmm. And it's probably, it gets ruined even in New Orleans quite frequently. And what I love about simple cocktails is it's like, if you don't do any of the small number of steps or ingredients in the correct proportion, then you can just completely ruin it. And whether that's putting in too much peychauds or I think what ruins most cocktails too much, especially like an old fashioned or a Sazerac is too much sugar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll often see people put a half an ounce of sweet in, in an old fashioned. I would put a quarter ounce at most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes less. And a Sazerac sometimes. Yeah. Dial it back. Dial, dial it, back. it back. And same thing. Like I do like an old fashioned because, and I'm giving you too many answers, but <laughs> it would be really fun to make an old fashioned, I think, with the five year. Just really simple, two dashes of orange, two dashes of Angostura, and then given the time of year, I maybe to use a quarter ounce of maple syrup mm, mm-hmm, kind of play mm-hmm. off some of those darker flavors. And I think that the Tizerai time would make a does make a great Sazerac. Perfect. You know, which again, I'm pretty minimal. I'm I'm five dashes of Peychauds, and I would maybe do one to two bar spoons of simple at most. Mm-hmm. I think I will try all I of those. I think I know tonight's cocktail. Spray of apps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much for being on the show today. We had such a great time talking to you. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. And I'm very excited about the whole horse journey on top of the whiskey journey. That's really fun. So yes, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a delight. Thank you so very much. Thank you all. It was such a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. We look forward to seeing what else is coming. Yeah. I appreciate it. And I used to go to LA a fair amount and hopefully maybe a little bit of a normalization. I can't quite see the future, but maybe fall 2021, hopefully we'll start. Very good. We'll look forward to that. That would be fantastic. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much, Sean. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right, the project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? 
Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyashef'sjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. Bless. <laughs> cheers. cheers. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection, has a YouTube channel, Eats, Drinks, TV. Streaming now are cocktails, the grand tour, culinary quickies, music and booze with Mo, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey, New shows coming soon include Complete Greek, Mighty Fine Wine, and Spirits of Rum, a podcast featuring personalities from the wide world of cane spirits. Find us on YouTube at Eat Drinks TV and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. Hey, Louise, good to have you on this week. Today, we are going to talk about pinhook whiskey, which I think is quite fascinating because all of the expressions are named after racehorses. I know I gave you like three or four of them the other day. Which one did you want to talk about today? I am going to talk about the pinhook tis rye time. I also loved the fact that all their whiskeys were named after horses because, I mean, let's face it, horses always have the coolest names. So you couldn't probably come up with anything better to name your whiskey anyway. So you know what I'm saying? So I loved that. And you know, I love me some rye. So I went for this one and I decided to go for it because I like that it's 95% rye. So, and I immediately when I tasted that, I was like, oh, I know exactly what I want to eat this and I was thinking if I was sitting watching the horses and I always like to play you know how I am with these pairings I like to envision myself in a place right I usually know what I'm wearing I usually know <laughs> what music is what color playing. your giant hat will be <laughs> Yeah, like I have got the whole scene in my head. Like that's how these pairings come about. And so I was envisioning just that scene right there. I thought, well, how about some sweet little pumpernickel tea sandwiches with lox, cream cheese, and dill to play up on that rye? I mean, yeah, yeah, like because when I when I eat rye bread, like there's there's just certain flavors that go along with rye, and and you know the that like caraway quality with it. And I mean, lox, cream cheese, fresh dill on a sweet little sandwich, crusts cut off, of course, cut into triangles. I mean, it'd be a perfect snack to have with that whiskey while watching horses. Oh, for sure. That sounds really good. That kind of reminds me of that first dish you made at my place when we were shooting for Whiskey a Chef's Journey and we had all the girls over and you had the fish to have some caraway and some other things that that reminded me of. Yeah, I think I I think that was smoked trout or it was either smoked or it was cured. I don't remember. No, it was cured. It was cured. Yeah, it was cured. It was cured. Sure. I did like a, a trout version of a gravlax, I want to say. I love those types of snacks because they're pretty 
pretty simple. Like even if you're making your own gravlax, people don't realize it's really just putting a bunch of spices and whatever on a piece of fish and wrapping it up tightly, soaking it in a little bit of alcohol and shoving it in the fridge for a few days. You know, it's, right, it doesn't right. require much. And like a snack like this, I mean, you know, oftentimes with my pairings, I've got some that are more elaborate, obviously would take you a lot longer to make. And then others are just like, nah, this is, this is a very straightforward rye. So why not a straightforward snack? Well, I think the next time we're allowed to go to the races, I think we'll need to go with our big giant hats and you'll need to pack some sandwiches and I'll bring the rye and then we can, you know, get a little box seat action and uh, enjoy the race. I can manage that. I can, I can manage that. Absolutely. When I, you know, whenever Santa Anita opens back up, we'll kick it out there. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, until that day, I will say thank you for joining us today, Louise, and we will talk to you next week. That sounds great. Talk to you then. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. You can become a sustaining supporter of Spirits of Whiskey by making a monthly donation. Just visit the Spirits of Whiskey page at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm forward slash spirits dash of dash whiskey and click on the support button. And if you really like us, give us a five star rating and a review. Thank you. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.